Hello, data enthusiasts. This is Chris Detzel, and I'm Michael Burke. Welcome to Data Hurls. We are your gateway into the intricate world of data, where AI, machine learning, big data, and social justice intersect. Expect thought-provoking discussions, captivating stories, and insights from experts all across the industries as we explore the unexpected ways data impacts our lives. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and excited about the future of data. Let's conquer these data hurdles together. All right. Welcome to another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel, and... I'm Michael Burke. How are you doing, Chris? Michael, I'm good, man. It's nice and hot in Dallas, Texas, but uh, doing really well. How about you? We just had like our first, it's not officially fall yet, but we just had our first cold morning. I wake up pretty early, as you know, and uh, we were in the 40s this morning. Wow. I was like, holy cow, fall's here. And then today my wife just sent me a picture of her and my son picking out pumpkins. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's here. (laughs) It's almost enough. We've got the pumpkin beer. We've got the pumpkins, the cider donuts. Everything's coming together. So it's it's a good time. My favorite time of the year. So, yeah, it's a fun time. And so, Michael, I'm going to have you. Uh, we have a special guest today. I'm going to have you uh, kick it off and introduce him. Yeah, today we have Robert Hodges, CEO of Altinity. Uh, Altinity is a company specializing in ClickHouse, which we'll get into in a little bit, offering services, training, and support for users of the open source Polymer database management system, and it was founded in 2017. So to kick things off, Robert, could you share some of the insights into your background as a software professional and what led you to get involved with Altinity? Sure. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mike. Great to meet you guys. And thanks for thanks for the invite to come on the show. So yeah, let me start with just how I got involved in IT and computers in general. Uh, it actually started back in January of 1972. I was in middle school. That's a while ago. And uh, our science teacher, wow. had heard, he had heard about these things, about computers, and he thought, hey, we ought to have that. <laughs> and so back in those days, you didn't just buy a computer and you know put it on a, on a desk somewhere. You got a subscription to a time-sharing service. So he signed up for this, and it came with, they delivered this teletype this Texas Instruments teletype, an acoustic modem, you know, with a, you know, with a phone line, and uh, a book with a red cover on it that said, Introduction to Washtenaw Computing Services and the Basic Language. And you could sign up for an hour anytime you wanted. And obviously, because nobody had ever heard of this stuff, it was pretty easy to get a slot. And so I just signed up. And I started reading the book. I figured, you know, it said the first thing it told you was, you know, how to dial the number of the timesharing service, uh, Washington Art Computing. And, uh, you know, at that point, once you were connected, you could just start in command, uh, typing commands in the basic language. And that's how I started. I wrote my first program. It was a, a geography quiz uh, written in basic. You know, I, what's the capital of Virginia, Rich? So uh, that's how I got into it. And it just went, went on from there. I, I've never done a CS degree. I think my last formal computer class I took in the late 70s, but I've read a lot of manuals and I've I I love math and and I've done a lot of programming over the years. So it turned into a professional job by uh 1978 and I've been doing it ever since. So that's how I got in. What a, um yeah. No, I was just going to say what a great story. Um my current um, founder of the company I'm working at, Boston Venture Studios, was a very similar first entry to computing, 
school purchased a computer. And I just think it's so cool that, you know, in this era, people had such limited time with these machines and they were kind of sucked into it. And it seems like you had a similar feeling of, you know, this magic kind of pulling you to something that did something completely differently, right? From anything else that you'd seen. Absolutely. And I think there was this whole generation of people that were essentially self-taught. And I guess in a way, that's why people like me are still in it because we, I, the way we got in it was we, we like to learn stuff. You know, I was always, I, when I was a kid, I, I, I like to understand how machines work. And I, one, one time I took apart my dad's power saw because it, it was broken and he said I could have the batteries. So I plugged it in to check it. Uh, you know, it didn't work. So I then took it apart. I got an electric shock that almost knocked me out because it was, you know, like it was still plugged in, but <laughs> That was the kind of, that's the kind of, you know, like desire to understand what's going on inside the clock. How does it work? That motivated a lot of us to learn this and then to keep learning. Uh, in my case, over 52 years, it was a, yeah, it's just something you never get tired of. It's a great story. And so as far as kind of the transformation, if we were to fast forward a little bit further down into your career as a software professional, um, what brought you to Altinity and, and how did you get involved? I know you mentioned your friend was one of the founders. Really yep. interesting story. Yeah. So I've been working with data since 1983. That's the first uh, time I was introduced to a, to a database. I was, I was uh, enlisted in the military and I've been working on it, the, on databases of one kind or another on and off ever since. So uh, what happened was I, the, the previous company that I startup I was at was uh, called uh, uh, Continuant. I was the, the CEO and we ended up selling it to VMware. So I was, uh, you know, working at VMware and one day I got an email from one of my best friends, uh, Alexander Zaitsev. He's somebody I met about 20 years ago and we and a previous startup and we remained friends ever since. And he said, hey, Robert, I know you like databases. Uh, I have one I really think you got to look at. It's called ClickHouse. And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm busy right now. And I so, because you know, when you when you do a transaction, you tend to get well. You you normally get locked up for a while, so I couldn't do anything. But I did eventually get around to looking at it, and this database was really phenomenal. It's incredibly fast. It's relatively simple compared to particularly because it's a data. It's a, a type of database that we call a data warehouse or an analytic database. It's relatively simple to set up and use, and it looks like it, it looked to me like it would work really well in the cloud. And at the time, I was working in a in a group at, at VMware that was taking care of VMware's uh, essentially cloud partners. These were people who would run VMware and create private clouds that they would then resell to their to their own users. And it just looked like, hey, this is a no brainer. We could actually set this up and run it, um, the, you know, and sell it to VMware partners. So to make a long story short, I ended up joining the company, uh, which was also on the board of directors, they had a couple people I've known for a really long time, Peter Zaitsev and Vidip Tachenko, really, really great open source uh, software engineers, uh, people I've really admired. And it was just a chance to, to you know, come and run another company that was doing something really, really interesting. So that's, that's how I got in it. And the way that, so I wasn't a founder, I've just been running the company for about five years. The way that Alexander decided to start the company was he was running a the analytics or real-time ad business in the in the Bay Area. They were using a database called Vertica, which is a was a pioneering data warehouse. Uh-huh. Invented, 
invented by Mike Stonebreaker and some of his pals. And they were ha- Alexander was having scaling problems. And it wasn't just that it, it was licensing costs. It could not use the, the hardware so, you know, efficiently enough to, to be cost effective in processing the tens of billions of events a day that they needed to process in this, in this business. And so he ended up trying out ClickHouse. It had recently been open sourced by Yandex, the original developers. Uh, he tried it out. He's, he's Russian. He didn't, wasn't bothered by the fact that the documentation was in Russian or missing. And uh, it was phenomenal. It was incredibly fast. It was incredibly cost efficient. It's very, very good at using hardware and, and using cheap storage. And, but it was really raw. So he decided to start a company to be a service bureau for this. And then with the idea that we would, you know, that company would eventually run it in the cloud. So he did that in 2017. I joined in 2019 and we've been growing ever since. I love it. It's almost similar and runs parallels to the stories of of companies similar to Databricks, right? Yes. An open source tool that was founded and then their whole business model is a service on top of that. Really interesting. That that um so yeah, I, oh, oh please go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, it definitely I put this, you know, there's such it, there's such innovation around open source the the and the, and the reason is that, that that these open source products tend to have very good product market fit. That's the way, you know, sort of VCs describe it. Uh, because a lot of the features are put in by users who, who have the problem themselves and are putting in features to solve it. And so Spark developed in many totally. ways that way. It, it started as a lab experiment about a mile from where I live uh, at, the, um, at the AMP lab at the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, ClickHouse was designed to solve a problem in web analytics where they were using MySQL databases to do analytics kind of like uh, Google Analytics. And it was just, it just couldn't keep up. It couldn't scan the data and answer people's questions fast enough. So the guys at Yandex developed a database that solved that problem. And then it turned out it was useful for a bunch of other problems. And then, of course, when they open sourced it, it just went crazy. I love it. And for our audience, can you just walk through quickly, you know, we have a wide range of technical and non-technical users to join the podcast. What is ClickHouse really used for today? Uh, and how is it used in the industry? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. So first of all, it's important to understand what it is that's special about databases. And the fundamental, if you want to call it the fundamental theorem of databases, is that the placement that is to say the location of data and what is contiguous to what is everything. It's the thing that determines more than anything else what your performance is going to be like. So ClickHouse is what's called a columnar database, which means that it stores data in tables. So you can imagine them being like Excel spreadsheets. But when you actually go in and look at where the, where the data is uh, stored, it's stored in columns. So, for example, if you have a table with five columns, you will go in and you'll see five or some multiple of five uh, five files that contain the, the data. You can think of it as being uh, in arrays. And the reason that we use this, uh, this storage organization is because it's extremely good for reading data and asking general questions about very large data sets and getting answers back quickly. Why is that? Well, you can, first of all, if you ask a question 
and you have a, a big table, which is 100 columns wide, and you only ask it on three columns, you'll only read those three columns. You won't have to read every row of the database. Yep. So that's right now, 97% of your data is, is dropped. Second thing, when you organize things in columns, you can compress the data very well. Uh, so th this, this lends it because you have the same data type. So you can get compression rates of up to 90%, which are common, and then far higher than that in extreme examples. Third thing, it lends itself to parallelization, parallelization very well. So for that reason, ClickHouse is extremely good at any problem where you have very large amounts of data arriving very, you want to react quickly to that arriving data, sort of like as soon as it hits the database, you want to query it and say, hey, there's something interesting. And then you want to be able to scan back through the history of the events that have arrived in the database and 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 learn more about the thing you're seeing now based on its history. Well, there's a bunch of business problems that have exactly those properties. Web analytics is a great one. So every time you touch a website, you, uh, you know, there's a record goes in a log and you want to then explore that data to find out why are people dropping out, for example, dropping out of funnels, not getting to the page where they do something. Network analysis using Flowlog. Uh, analysis of mobile and uh, telco data uh, using what are called called detail records so that you can figure out whether you have provision capacity or figure out uh, you know, where you should place ads. Uh, log management, observability, valuing assets and reacting to events in financial markets, and then finally security, where you just have a flood of events, often tens of millions or hundreds of millions per second, arriving from all kinds of different sources. You want to recognize when something interesting happens, like a, a server making DNS requests to a known malware server, and you want to get back in there and quickly figure out when did this start, how widespread is it, so on and so forth. That's what ClickHouse does, and it's enabled. It's not just that it does it well, it does it so well that it's in fact, in some cases, enabled entirely new businesses that can, uh, you know, depend on the ability to react to data quickly. You know what? I think that may have been the most elegant response I've ever heard about a columnar database. That was incredible. Thank you. Look <laughs> what you do. Uh, well, it's kind of my job to do that, so I can't really take credit. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think that you know, for everybody on the call too, it's really important to understand that this type of database is just, you know, imperative. It's it's the of utmost importance for anything that's real time streaming that not only has to get somewhere in real time, but also has to change or transact in some way where it's like you're looking at aggregates of a data or right. You know, when you're talking about thousands and millions and billions of columns of data and rows, it it, it needs to be fast and it has to be paralyzed so that multiple things can happen at once. Absolutely. Um, really interesting. So, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. And one of the magical things about this is that you see a, people can do, when you have a database like this, people can do incredibly creative things with it. I'll just give you an example. Uh, there's a company that we worked with at one point called Admiral and uh, they help people who run websites decide when to pop question about whether to, for example, remove an ad blocker and sign up for a subscription. The way that they do that is that they're accumulating data and then asking questions in real time. As a page is rendering, you can go back to Admiral and say, hey, uh, you know, like, is it time to pop the question? You have to be able to respond. You have to be able to 
to look at the history of what that person is doing on the website and respond within a few milliseconds in order to do that. So database, this is an example of enabling something that just wouldn't exist with with the databases that exist before this time. Every time I see that, I, it makes my heart sing because it's just the creativity and the way that people can you know, sort of develop these new ways of using data and then creating these imaginative businesses that solve real problems for people. I love it. I think that is such a great example and one that is so common, right? And if you think about the rest of the world, there are so many use cases like this where even a second is too much time. It's too much latency for a a decision to need to be made. Um, So in your view, how has Altinity made an impact in the data management and analytics industry, and particularly to the relationship to ClickHouse, as you guys have been such supporters and kind of contributors to this open source software? I, I, a great question. I think there's a couple things that I would point to. Uh, one is that we've simply popularized for ClickHouse. Uh, the database market is incredibly crowded. This, you know, you look around, you read Hacker News, this, there's basically a new database every week. Um, you know, most of them, you know, sort of appear and that's the last time you hear them. They, somebody says, uh, does a show HN uh, article and they disappear. But, but there are many more that, there, there are many databases that, that persist. So you need to get out of the noise level. And one of the things that we did was that we just spent a lot of time talking about uh, a ClickHouse. I do webinars uh, on ClickHouse. Uh, we do a lot of blog articles, just helping people to understand what this can do. We were helped, of course, by the fact that companies like Cloudflare and eBay also saw mm-hmm. the benefit in this database. They wrote about it, uh, shared what they had done with you know, sort of real-world, large-scale use case. So popularizing, helping to popularize ClickHouse was one of our contributions. The second one is making a bunch of country, uh, companies successful with it, at this point, hundreds. And they range from uh, mom-and-pop startups that have maybe two people or even side projects and, you know, being able to teach people how to use ClickHouse effectively. And uh, all the way up to companies that are, for example, we have one that's in the F10. And I... Uh, you know, again, enabling them to use this very powerful tool. One thing about ClickHouse yep. is that it's like a race car, like a, a drag racer, which means that it's a powerful it's a powerful vehicle, but you got to point it in the right direction, and you have to use some caution in the way that you drive it. Otherwise, you, for <laughs> example, will not get the problem solved. Like it, there's certain problems it's not suitable for. That's one issue, and then for right. problems that it is suitable. You have to understand a, a little bit or work with somebody who understands how it works underneath because that's what gets you the speed. Like if you want to get those, you know, 10 millisecond response times, you really have to know a certain amount about how ClickHouse works inside. That's how you get that performance. And we do that yep. and we do it in all kinds of environments from our cloud all the way to people who are uh, shipping, you know, embedded em- embedded appliances. I love I love it. And I feel like there are so many use cases where that optimization, when you talk about 10 milliseconds, for people that haven't had to get to that kind of sub-second latency, it is an art beyond anything else, right? These guys know the products in and out, but they're also incredibly creative, right, in how they optimize and solve these types of problems. Right. Um, as, as you see these integrations of ClickHouse and pr- probably the growth that you've seen over the last, you know, 
several years. How are you seeing technologies like AI starting to shape the future of data analytics? And what are some of the potential benefits that organizations can expect from these synergies? That's a really interesting question because I, and I think where I want to start is to just talk about synergies. Um, so when I got this job, which was, I started on January 1st, uh, 2019, I was sitting down at my computer. I was so psyched because we were going to, you know, I was going to be helping our company help users build these applications. And we had this great data store incredibly fast. You could get data into it quickly. You could get it out quickly. So for sure, we were going to be doing all kinds of integrations with machine learning and AI. And I know there's a lot of excitement around ChatGPT, for example, right now in the last year, but AI has been around for a really long time. And it started to get really big. Uh, I sort of, you know, after about 2011, 2012, when, you know, neural networks really hit. And so there already yep. was a lot of AI, particularly in things like e-commerce, where you're doing recommendations or, um, you know, bidding strategies for ads where you're using AI to, to decide when to place a bid. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, this is going to be part of our life. Well, that was a a completely mistaken understanding of the problem. Turns out, I probably had one customer out of hundreds out of hundreds that was serious about asking about AI integration with ClickHouse. What everybody has in fact asked for is visualization. So the pattern that you see with uh, you know with uh, with ClickHouse is that people use it because it can sift through very very large database. Uh, you know, very large data sets very, very quickly and do it in different ways, kind of slicing and dicing. And so what this what this requires is the ability to launch those queries quickly and then, for example, show them visually, show them in graphs. This is incredibly powerful because it turns out humans, you know, we talk about AI doing pattern matching, like photo identification. Well, it turns out humans are really good at this as well. In fact, in many ways, far better than uh, than than most AIs, or in fact, all AIs that develop to date. So that's actually been our world. And it has taken a long time for us to understand how it is that these real-time data warehouses, which is what we do, coexist mm -hmm. with AI. Because AI is, of course, being used in you know widely in businesses. And what it turns out is they kind of run in parallel in the use cases that we see. So they feed off the same data. So you'll have the you'll have the real-time data warehouse that allows you to sift through. But at the same time, you'll have machine learning and AI applications that are feeding off the same data lakes that we load from, feeding off the same event streams we load on, and solving a different set of problems in parallel, such as, for example, how to execute on a trading strategy of some kind for real-time bidding, or how to... Uh, you know, make re you know make sophisticated recommendations to users. These are these are things that so so I think part of this is to understand you know that you know sort of the coming you know you know merging and synergy between these is actually to allow these things to work as efficiently as possible together. So for us, one of the best ways that I'll give you an example of something that's coming up right now. We generate a lot of data or process a lot of data. What our many of our customers would love is if we can just automatically dump it into a data lake once we've merged it and made it very efficient. 
so that all the AI applications yep. can turn on to it, you know, can just jump on it and use it for training. So it's not that the database is connected with with the AI application directly. It's more a question of allowing it to work synergistically. And that's actually where I think more of our focus, it's a, you know, as we look at this, more of our focus is there than, for example, directly embedding AI in data warehouses. You know, it's so funny. And I've heard so many requests from customers like this throughout my career of, you know, we've designed a system that is hyper-tailored for a specific set of use cases, and they want something that just does it all, you know? And it is such a challenge managing those conversations and walking people through them. But like, I think the terminology I always used to do is like, you know, we've built you a Ferrari, right? If you want to go off-roading, we need to build you a Jeep. It's a different device right. that's designed right. for different use cases. It is. Um, or if we've built your your system for speed, if you need versatility or if you need, you know, um, scalability and process, right? Or fatter tables that have tens of thousands of columns and they need to all interact and be processed in parallel. That's a totally separate use case. So I love walking people through that. Um you know, as AI and ML models become more complex and data intensive, what are some of the use cases where ClickHouse and Altinity really adapt to provide those scalability? I know it's not all, I think that large language models and some of these neural networks are kind of put into um, use cases that are, are separate in some ways or could be considered separate. But with with something like optimizing column or data storage. You, you just brought up that as an example. Yes. How are you guys leveraging AI and things like that today to meet the, and support these evolving yeah, plans? I, that is a really great question because I think that gets at, I'm not an AI expert by any means. I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in everything related to computing and I've been watching this for a long time, but I think the, the thing that I find fascinating about AI is the fact that and you can see this in chat GPT, it's not the fact that it can answer a question for you. It's the fact that it will do what looks an awful lot like reasoning, which is in some ways the yeah. hardest part of writing to construct an argument to, you know, sort of understand the, you know, what is the question being asked? What are the, you know, ground assumptions? And then to construct a an answer that, you know, that, takes available information and then comes at a re comes to a reasoned conclusion. This to me has been the most surprising thing in the large language models that they are able to do this and it's something that is very difficult to relate to the underlying data that was used to train it. It's like okay, how do they do that? This is this is emergent behavior. And um so I, to answer your question, that's exactly how this that's exactly how this perhaps could be could be used is to to reason about okay I'm building an application uh, and here's what I want to do give me a starting point for how this application should be organized and I do see that if uh, you know like if we're dealing with schemas for example it is possible for large language models to begin to reason about these in a way that's it's not always perfect I mean you have to look pretty carefully at what they're suggesting but the point is the suggestions are often quite good. And in some cases, bring up things that you wouldn't have thought thought of yourself. So I see these, I see these calcul, you know, sort of not having the AI directly embedded in the database, but more being able to 
to give you, I, I mean, what would be really cool is to see if, if this can help give us the envelope of reasoning that goes around some of the uses of the data that we that we provide. I think that's entirely possible, at least from what is known now. And I think that's something, that's the place where I really, I, I'm really most interested in looking for, for, you know, some really innovative applications to emerge. I couldn't agree more. I think that the what we're seeing right now in the large language model world is specialization. And it's coming, I think, faster than anybody anticipated. You see the generalized models like what Google and uh, Azure and Facebook are coming out with, right? But then if you dig a level deeper, you're starting to see, you know, the med tech world completely changing, right? Mm -hmm. And we're just at the beginning of this huge depth and kind of transformation, I think, in the medical space. Um, same thing with insurance or any of these areas where complex reasoning is really required. You know, a database design, DevOps, there's all of these areas of opportunity for large language models to not necessarily solve anything on their own, because I don't think that they are quite there, but certainly be a second set of eyes, help as an advisor, and actually enable these experts to move at speeds unlike anything they were able to before. Right. I, um, I, I'm yeah. personally a weak, weak AI person. In other words, I think that AI will be used most effectively together with smart humans. And you yeah. can see that this is, I already use a, I, I, I mean, if, if I'm stuck, like I go to chat GPT for ideas when I get writer's block, it's really good for that. It, yeah. It's not, uh, it's great. Perfect. Yeah. But it, it gives you, it throws out some things. It's like, okay, wow. You know, those are, I hadn't thought of that. It, and, and then you can play around with it. So I think you're right. And I think the, the ability to, to narrow the focus and perhaps get better answers because the, the general purpose models, one real, you know, sort of practical problem with using the general purpose models is they give you answers that are close enough to being right that even an expert cannot easily determine where it's wrong. And that's actually a real trend. So, uh, for example, yeah. you know, write me a piece of code that does X or tell me what that code is doing. Uh, you get an answer where I look at it and it's like, okay, it would take me longer to figure out whether that is right or not than it would be to write it from <laughs> So, you know, it's funny that there's been this whole conversation about the usage of AI and that experts will consume AI-generated content and produce AI-generated content significantly more than your entry-level employee because of exactly that. If you don't know what you're asking for and what is being produced, it's so hard to understand what's real. Um, you know, switch, switching topics a little bit as, you know, in addition to the evolution of AI, there is this ever-increasing importance around data privacy, regulation, compliance. How does Altinity ensure that data stored and processed through ClickHouse is handled in a compliant, you know, ever-evolving, regulated way, especially with this new integration of AI? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. So first of all, I'd say that that you know there's kind of like a a permission to play type of problem, which is just make sure the database is secure and not getting hacked. And we've actually put a lot of effort right. into that. One of the things that I'm working on is, uh, uh, in the data on uh, Kubernetes community community is establishing a set of standards for Kubernetes operators. These are pieces of software that are used to manage databases on Kubernetes, they basically turn it into a, a resource that you can describe very simply 
And then they'll make it, they'll do things like when you change the resource definition, they will upgrade the database for you, or they will add more nodes, things like that. So this is this is job one to get get that part. The the compliance issues are really as you move into that, there's some really interesting problems that you run into. And one of them is that it is way faster. There, there's a there's a a conflict between speed and security. Let me give you a simple example. Mm-hmm. Analytic databases work really well if they can just make the assumption you never work, you never delete data. Because it's actually kind of, if you say, hey, I've got a user and I need to delete that person's history from our, you know, from our record of analytic uh, information that we're using for web analytics, that's actually a really expensive operation if you have a database that, for example, spans 50 nodes and has uh, peta, you know, like has a petabyte of data in it. You have to go out and you have yeah. to find all that person's data. And the arrangement of that data, if it was designed done for speed, doesn't necessarily make it easy to find that. Moreover, you may have to rewrite enormous amounts of data to just remove that person's information. So one of the, you know, one of the real challenges is to the and, and something that we help people do is lay out, you know, in multi-tenant systems, lay out the data for uh, the tenants so that it's actually still easy to find and the queries are still fast. But at the same time, if you have to drop the tenant, you can do it quickly and only write, rewrite, say, 1% of your data as opposed to 50%. So that's a really common problem that comes up. And uh, for us, it's, you know, like one of the things we have to explain is, uh, in analytic databases, you can divide tables into parts, and it's and uh, this is a you know sort of basic organizational principle. And a lot of people will say, okay, you know, I've got tenants, I'm going to put each of them in different parts, and that's a you know like a reasonable way to think about it. The problem is that in any multi-tenant system, there are big tenants and there are little tenants, and there's a huge tr- you know variation between them. So if you do it that way, you will actually end up with data that's very difficult to manage that overflows. Uh, systems you can't parallelize well. So yep. what we teach people to do is keep everything in one table, but sort it in such a way that each tenant is stored in a contiguous patch. That's easier to manage. It trades off the fact that, okay, yeah, we eventually we'll have to rewrite it, but we'll only have to go rewrite the part where that tenant lives and maybe some stuff on either side of it. We won't have to, but, you know, so we can still have speed, but we can also be able to you know, implement things like right to be forgotten. So this is this is an example of the challenges that, that that we help people through as they're, you know, as they're building these systems and also trying to meet their compliance requirements. Robert, this was such an interesting conversation, and I really appreciate your time today. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Detzel, any follow-up questions or last points that we want to bring up before we jump? No, this is really good. And Robert, thank you so much uh, for coming coming on to Data Hurdles. And, uh, you know, we look forward to getting this published. And so uh, that's the end of our podcast for today. Uh, and thank you for tuning in to Data Hurdles. Please make sure you rate and review us. I'm Chris Detzel, and I'm Michael Burke. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Yeah.